Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. The more you put pressure on yourself, you're more likely to experience stress. So a lot of the stress is to some extent self-induced, self-induced pressure. It's understanding that confidence doesn't have to be about very high levels of self-belief or feeling really good. Just accept how you feel and how you're thinking. See confidence as more of something that's about action driven by values. I would encourage people to be more outcome agnostic. You can still have self-doubt and speak up in a meeting. Thank you so much for joining me today on episode 38 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Paul Berry. Hi, Paul. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Harsha. How are you? Very good, thank you. Um, before we begin, I just wanted to thank all the supporters of the podcast and YouTube channel for their amazing support. The podcast recently passed 4,000 downloads and 7,600 YouTube views. A special shout out to the US, where it has now been downloaded more than 1,000 times, and I had my first download in Missouri and South Dakota. Please subscribe, like, and share if you enjoy the content. I will be taking a break from the podcast over the summer, and this will be my last episode until Wednesday, the 14th of September, but we'll still release a few YouTube clips. I'm wishing you all a great summer, have fun, and stay healthy. Now back to the show. With a background in the field of performance psychology, Paul works with C-suite leaders and those transitioning into leadership roles to enhance various aspects related to organizational and individual performance. Paul specializes in developmental coaching, which seeks to better understand how leaders construct their worldviews and how this influences their approach to leadership, working relationships and decision-making. His coaching aims to enhance client critical thinking and achieve shifts in perspective. Paul was previously a professional for nearly 15 years in the investment banking industry. He worked as an equity and credit derivatives trader for a global banking group managing large risk positions. Paul has numerous coaching and finance qualifications, including a master's in coaching and mentoring practice from Oxford Brookes University and a master's in performance psychology from the University of Edinburgh. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much. Well, so so happy to have you on the podcast today, Paul. And you know, I've I've, be, I've admired your work for a long time, and just love your uh, critical thinking. And and you don't seem to be one who always just goes with the flow and likes to ask questions, which I think is so important in life because I think sometimes we have these ideas of of how things are meant to be, but until you actually question the reality of what you're doing, there's something missing there. So so happy to have you on the show. So the right. way I like like to kick off with things is, look, I'm a big fan of the art. So is there a performer, song, book or film which you'd like to share with us? Well, I'm a big fan of performance um, <clears throat> and performance excellence. So that could 
be a performance artist. Uh, uh, ballet um, fascinates me, the excellence in that arena, in the military field. So anything related to performance and the psychology that underpins it interests me. And one book that I would recommend anybody who's interested in this area is a book by Chris Hadfield, and it's called An Astronaut's Guide to Life. And um, it ha- has a, a front cover that looks as if it's going to be a bit of a a bit of a jokey uh, book. I don't know if, you've, if you're aware of it, but actually, it's very, um, it's it's uh, it's quite serious. And Chris Hadfield is a Canadian astronaut. He was the first Canadian astronaut to uh, work for NASA. He was originally a fighter pilot in the Canadian Air Force, and he his original job was to put planes into um, fly them very high and to make them fail in such a way that the designers and engineers had no idea how to. Um, bring that plane back from failure. So his job was to ensure he didn't crash once the plane was, uh, um, he'd put the plane into a, a sort of um, a spin, so to speak. And he's a fascinating character and he has some great uh, videos. He does tape talks, talks about uh, understanding risk, which might certainly be interested to your audience in the financial world. And just in a, a critical safety industry, understanding what excellence looks like, how they manage risk and uncertainty, I would point anyone to Chris Hadfield's work. No, th- thanks for sharing that with us. And yeah, I'm, I'm interesting to see here that you like ballet, Paul, because I'm I'm quite a big ballet fan. And and it, I, I don't know if you've ever come across a, a ballerina called Sylvie Guillem or Guillem. Um, she was famous sort of back in the day. And up to I, I'd never been interested in ballet until I watched her dance in this modern dance thing on on TV. And suddenly it was one of these like light bulb moments where you could see what ballet could be like. And then I managed to watch her in the flesh. And I think ever since that time, I think whenever you're watching people at the top of the game, and I think she's one of the greatest ballerinas of the last, you know, 50, 60 years, you can see something even from somebody like myself who knows nothing. Uh, it's amazing how it's it's quite easy to pick these things up. But yeah, I, I, I love that, uh, that example that you shared with us. Mm. Now, now, sort of moving on to your background, Paul, now we have a pretty similar background in the sense that you studied economics and then investment analysis at university. So what led you to that, that choice? I'm not even sure that there was a choice. I just fell into it, probably similar to people who become doctors. Maybe their uh, parents were doctors or lawyers. I, uh, my father worked in banking. And so I'd already, always been exposed as a young boy to that world, the world of finance, economics. When offered it as a, an A-level subject, it just seemed a natural um, uh, option. And from there, you know, I, I found it interesting. I was reasonably competent at it as an academic discipline. Frankly, I don't think I had any idea what to do after university and, or how to differentiate different types of banking, investment versus corporate banking or wealth management. Um, and I just fell into a job. I, I'm not so sure it was necessarily a conscious choice. So you you moved into sort of banking and then you know, became a trader, which is obviously highly competitive and very sought after. So how did you manage that transition? And were there any particular strategies that you used to uh, get in get you know, get that position, uh, Paul? Well, I think trading you know training trading has as with all jobs, there's a particular stereotype and um, fantasy about the job, and uh, you know trading has um, uh, from the outside. Certainly, years ago at least, was seemed to be exciting, 
uh, a dynamic job. The the money uh, obviously, or well, people have a perception that you can earn loads of money. So that's what you know drew me into that uh, into that area. Once I was in the banking environment, and yeah, you know, it's a you're then a practitioner. You're not just understanding things theoretically. Uh, you're involved in the markets and making decisions. And there are elements of the fantasy that match the reality. There are also um, lots of differences. Yeah, but but so I, I think uh, that that's what certainly drew me into that uh, into that field. Cool. Um, and obviously, training can be incredibly stressful. So how did you find, you know, how did you deal with that? And did you do anything in particular to build up your resilience? Now, I, I personally, I never traded, I knew that that wouldn't be for me. So I preferred, a, I went down the accounting route. And when I went into banking, it was more on the structuring side. So you had a, a much longer uh, term planning and execution and structuring of deals. But you know, on the trading side, I I assume that there's a much more short term you know, in terms of putting on trades and you know, obviously there's analysis behind it. But how did you uh, deal with the, the stress, Paul, with that? It's interesting you say trading can be stressful. So, you know, behind your question is, is an assumption that uh, stress is embedded into trading. And I would suggest an alternative perspective, uh, and this is just more, more broadly around uh, stress, you know the, the the degree to which somebody experiences stress uh, is to a large extent not not in any way um, entirely, but to, to a large extent a function of how you interpret your reality, how you interpret events. So I actually never found trading particularly stressful. There might be there might have, there would have been occasions where I had positions that were um, either losing money or big jumps in a market price that meant we lost money. And uh, that would have been anxiety inducing because of the consequences, a consequence, okay, you lose money. And uh, is that going, how will that affect bonus and ultimately job security? And I think that's a, nat- so that's a natural um, thing to experience. I don't think you would try to not experience that. You know, the experience of anxiety is there for a reason. It's information for you. You don't want to not have anxiety in uh, any trade. Would you like to be operated by, on by a surgeon who doesn't experience anxiety? I wouldn't. It, anxiety helps focus your attention. It's motivational. It, it enables you to think about how you're responding to risk. But outside of that, I mean, a lot of the more you put pressure on yourself, you're more likely to experience stress. So a lot of uh, stress is to some extent self-induced, self-induced um, pressure, and it's pressure around expectations, expectations of, of yourself, expectations of others, how others will see you or um, perceive you. And if that becomes too much, you're likely to experience stress. I was quite chilled out because it's I didn't really care how people uh, <laughs> judge me. And I wasn't that bothered about whether I made loads of money or not, um, which probably meant I wasn't very um, suited to trading. I was, in, I, I was interested in it sort of from a scholarly perspective and practically as well, but I was not this wolf of Wall Street who had to make loads of money every year. And so, again, naturally, I had to I had perspective and that meant I experienced less stress. No, I, I just love that answer, Paul, because I, I do think that, uh, you know, sometimes you get caught up in the um, in the byproducts of of your success. So, as you're saying, if you make money, then you know, it goes into your bonus. Hopefully, you'll get promoted. People will perceive you in a different way. And on the flip side, if you don't or, or things go wrong, then it's you know, career limiting and 
that whole idea of um, being attached to the result is quite a dangerous game to play. If you feel as if you're defined by your job, your title or your role, you see people who get you know, very nervous, very anxious. Um, but I, I like that point you make about you need a certain level of stress and anxiety because that does tell you to almost focus and really think about what you're doing. Because if you just uh, are very gung-ho and you don't realize about the downside and it's just the upside, then you'll just be putting more and more risk on without thinking uh, about that that type of risk and whether it's uh, going to pay off. So uh, I love that point. Um, do you yeah, have I mean, any other thoughts? Or? Well, you know, stress is just information. Uh, all, all feelings, thoughts are just information. If you're if you're walking down the street and somebody attacks you with a knife, um, you're going to get very stressed. Your uh, heart rate's going to go up massively. Your um, your uh, digestion system will uh, stop. You don't need to uh, digest your lunch because you might be dead in uh, a minute. Your mouth will uh, dry because um, we don't need to salivate the digestive tract uh, anymore because you might not be alive in, in a minute. And this is all adaptive and you're not going to, your attention will be diverted to the situation at hand. You're not going to be distracted by a text message. You won't be thinking about what am I having for dinner tonight? You'll be focusing on what the stressor is. That's adaptive and that's useful. Similar in other contexts, the, the problem is then if that becomes chronic stress and that impacts your ability to process information. And, uh, and that's, I think, something to consider, not whether stress is good or bad or um, even minimizing uh, anxiety. It's more about uh, your relationship with the anxiety that's important. That's really helpful. And we'll sort of touch on that a bit later when we talk about decision making and stress. But, you know, no great points there. So you, you had a pretty good run in banking for, for 15 years. Um, did you learn any other lessons um, from, you know, uh, from your time? And, uh, and how have you found life since heading off to start uh, Human Performance Science Limited? There are many lessons within somebody's career. I mean, trading can be quite a solitary job. You run your own uh, trading book. You're in a team, but you have your own individual P&L. I guess two lessons that might be uh, useful. One is the importance of network. And from a career perspective, anybody who's, who's interested in enhancing their career or de- growing their career, I think developing a deep and broad network of people is invaluable. I don't just mean knowing lots of people, um, but developing relationships because you'll you'll never know where they will lead to. Um, that's something I didn't do as a trader. And I think the other lesson is developing what I would call um, reflexivity. We have a term in there's a term in therapy and coaching called reflexivity, which is different to reflection. Reflection is just looking backwards. Reflexivity is uh, an understanding of the self and how that impacts, you know, just what's going on with you. So uh, to, to make that less uh, abstract, one of the reasons I left the banking world uh, was because I just kind of lost interest and I was quite interested in uh, applying. I was more interested in pursuing a, a career a, around uh, psychology, coaching, and applying that in uh, back into the the finance profession to improve, you know, sort of group dynamics and and leadership capabilities. But that was a conscious decision. What was unconscious, probably and unrecognized, and probably only a, that I realized several years later, was that part of that decision was driven by a lack of confidence in myself 
uh, that I was capable enough in that field. So that's what I mean about being reflective because I didn't recognize that. I then took a decision to move, uh, change my career, but it was actually on one level, on a sort of subconscious level, uh, a lack of confidence in the self, which uh, meant I kind of sabotaged that career. And I moved into another uh, another career. And I, so I would encourage anyone who's um, interested, certainly who's interested in leadership, improving relationships in general, uh, under, giving some consideration to values you have which influence and beliefs you have about yourself which are unspoken beliefs perhaps you've never even given any deliberate consideration to them but how they influence how you relate to other people and you know what you're doing on a daily basis if you could sort of go back in time and you maybe had that confidence would you carry on in the finance field or are you happy with the path that you've taken I, w- I would have still diverted, but I may have carried on for a little bit longer. Okay. Or I may have worked with a coach to, to explore that confidence. Um, but unless you're aware of it, you're not gonna, you, you can't do anything about it. So, so Paul, just to uh, reiterate, sorry, reflexivity is basically reflecting on yourself and trying to get self-awareness. Is that broadly correct? Or? So reflexivity is not so much about reflection. Reflection, I could reflect on what happened to me yesterday. And uh, that's a, just a looking backwards. Reflectivity is more about the understanding of the self. Yes, you consider it to be uh, self-awareness, and but not just self-awareness. Self-awareness is often understood to be around how do other people experience me. That would be an example of being self-aware, or how ma- how might how I communicate to others impact them. That would be an example of self-awareness. Reflectivity is a bit different, which is an understanding of your own belief systems and how they impact how you show up in any particular context. That's really helpful. I never come across that term before. So thanks for sharing that with us. And and sort of moving on from that, this whole idea of confidence, because I just find that such a fascinating subject because it can have such a profound effect on your uh, professional and personal life. Now, is this something that people are able to develop? Uh, Is it something about getting mastery in a particular area? Um, What do you think, Paul? Let me throw that back at you. How would you know if you had, um, uh, take, take, I know you're, you're interested in cricket, right? Yeah. A batsman or a bowler? A uh, batsman, maybe. Okay. <laughs> if you are playing in a cricket match and you're going out to bat and you had all the confidence in the world, how would you know that you had all the confidence in the world? Just by feeling good um, and looking at sort of the recent events. So, if, so for me, if, if I was on a good run, then that it was like a self-reinforcing thing. And then I felt good about myself. My mind was much more tuned. Um, Not that every time I was in a good run, it it carried on. But I did know when I was on a bad run that uh, yeah, I I was much more worried. I was much more nervous. I, I thought too much. And I definitely think, especially in sport, thinking is a very, well, thinking too much is a very dangerous thing. And I know that when I played at my best, I, I literally just did not think at all. It was purely re- reflex. It was almost like being in the matrix. It was such a surreal experience uh, yeah. and, and probably on one of the most important days of my life in my sporting career. So that, on that day, I was had, had this amazing run, played really well. So everything came together in this beautiful serendipitous way. Um, so yeah, that, that was confidence for me. So that's a specific example of when something went uh, that, 
yes. very well for you. Yeah. So what you're describing there, as I understand it, is the concept of flow. So you're very much in the moment. There's an absence of uh, thinking um, and it's just kind of effortless, yeah, um, which is distinct from confidence uh, as such. But as you describe confidence, um, feeling good. What does good mean? Sure. Yeah. Well, what is good when you say I'm feeling good? What, what, is, what is good? Um, I just f- feeling good about yourself. Um, I mean, say, say with sort of podcasting, I mean, the first time I did it, I was in- incredibly nervous yeah. and I felt, oh my God, nobody's want- going to want to listen to this. It'll be useless. Mm. I'm not saying it's a progress that much, but mm. definitely having done it, say 40, 50 times, you uh, have achieved a certain level of mastery. You know how things work. Um, okay. There are always ways of getting better, uh, in- improving the conversation, but I suppose it's just feeling good about yourself. And that comes, I hope it comes across in the, in the finished product. Um, so yeah, that, that's the way I would view it too. So I think you, you view it the same way many people would view confidence. Often if you ask people, what does confidence mean to you? How do you know if you don't have any confidence or you have very high levels of confidence? People will talk about how they feel. It's exactly what you did, feeling good or um, the degree to which they have this sort of negative self-talk. Um, if I'm not feeling confident, I will um, be talking uh, critically uh, to myself or having nerves, anxiety. And another thing that people often say, talk about is having a sort of belief in oneself. And, and they would consider confidence to be about having an absence of doubt. You know, if you had 10 out of 10 confidence, you'd have an absence of doubt You'd feel something that could be very energized for somebody. It could be calm, but there's something about, I would feel a certain way and um, maybe an absence of fear. This is how most people understand confidence. Uh, and, you know, the, the approach to, to then um, work on that is to try to minimize anxiety, to use a, a, a sort of sports psychology approach called cognitive reframing, which is where you uh, recognize negative thoughts, then you adopt different perspectives. Uh, They often talk about uh, changing performance inhibiting thoughts to performance enhancing thoughts. And and, and then you can do stuff around listening to music, meditation, to maybe change how you feel. All of these sort of a a variety of tools that can change how you feel or uh, what you're thinking with the end goal to eradicate doubt, optimize belief in the self and to feel a certain way that you think is going to be optimal. So, so Paul, so you're saying it's not about feeling, it's something else. Is that right or not? I, I, I haven't said what I believe uh, yet, <laughs> but I'm saying that if, right. if you believe confidence is sure. about feeling a certain way yeah. or not thinking negatively, then this is what you would do to address that. And there is a you know, historically within, say, sports psychology, uh, the, because confidence is very big within sports psychology, probably the one domain that confident, that focuses on confidence more than others in a sort of psychology field, then that has been the approach. Um, and that can be effective because we can control uh, how we think to a degree, but that puts a lot of pressure on somebody. It's quite hard just to control how you feel. If after this podcast, you walk down the street and somebody put a gun to your head and said, Harsha, I'm going to shoot you if you feel afraid. Yeah. Your life's on the line. Can you control yeah. how you feel? You won't That's be able to tough, do it. Yeah, tough one. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot of pressure in, change, in trying to 
uh, engineer how we feel or how we uh, think. Thoughts just come into our heads randomly. Like who knows why we think certain things? We can respond to the thoughts, but but that's effortful. Takes energy. So there's an alternative conceptualization, which is that. Confidence doesn't have to be about how you feel or feeling good or having positive thoughts. Confidence is more about an action, and the action is driven by your values. So let's say you take your、uh, cricket scenario. You're you're walking out to to bat. You might not be feeling good. You might be full of self doubt. But rather than trying to change how you feel and、um, uh, almost persuade yourself to, to think a certain way, because your body and your brain is doing that for a reason. Rather than doing that, confidence for you comes from committing to a certain action rooted in certain values. So that could be okay. I'm going to、um, play aggressively because I, I want. This is what it means to、uh, bat with confidence. So an actual action or、uh, an action of I will just watch the ball. I'll still feel very nervous. I will still. I still might believe I'm the worst batsman in the team. I still might believe that I'm I'm going to get dropped the next match because I've had、um, three low scores, but the action is just to focus on the ball, and and any shot that I decide, I, I would just、uh, play with conviction. So that's an action that's driven by an internal belief system, and then whatever the outcome is, so be it. Now that takes a lot of pressure off somebody because your confidence now is more robust. You have a a confidence that is、uh, driven by an internal framework. Rather than most people's confidence is largely influenced by external factors. Somebody writes into you, or you get a few、uh, pieces of feedback saying, "Harsha,、uh, I think your podcasting style is horrendous.、Um, uh, you should just give up this game, or you、um, you lose、uh, audience members."、Yeah. That will hit your confidence. Sure. If you have an external, if your idea of confidence. Is that it comes from external factors, and that leaves you being very vulnerable. Because if people say, "Oh, you're brilliant! I love that podcast," you'll feel great about yourself. Yeah, yeah but、um, you've no control of what they say necessarily. What you do have much more control over is your sort of internal value system, which then drives your actions. And paradoxically, from there, your your anxiety will be reduced. You're more likely to feel better. But you're not directly trying to change how you feel or how you think. If you're going to have lots of distracting thoughts, you just allow yourself to have distracting thoughts. You just accept them. They're not going to kill you. They're not going to.、Um, they're in and of themselves. They're meaningless. And so that can be absolutely worked on.、Um, um, but it's un- understanding that confidence doesn't have to be about very high levels of self-belief or feeling really good, because most people do not have very high levels of self-belief. At all times, many people have low feelings of self-belief for most of the time. Even if you read, hear interviews of sort of、um, you know Roger Federer, Rafa Nadal, they these are the greatest tennis players of all time. Often, when they're interviewed, if they've won a five-set match, they will say, "Oh, halfway through, I thought I was going to lose." So, if they struggle with with belief, then mere mortals will as well. And so, it's a bit of a fool's errand to. Try to constantly change how you feel or what you're thinking. Just accept how you feel and how you're thinking, and see confidence as more of something that's about action driven by values. So, Paul, is it、uh, trying to focus on the process and those actions,、um, and concentrating on that? So, say with the podcast analogy, if I,、um, you know, prepare,、uh, you know, really research my guests, make sure that I've、uh, done everything I can.、Uh, 
to uh, make sure the show goes as well as possible. Uh, and then we record the show and okay, look, if, if it doesn't, if there's no uh, audience reaction, then that's not, I can't control that. But what I can control is, you know, the production and how I prepare and say in a sporting analogy or work analogy, say you're going to an interview, you prepare as much as you can, you do the work behind the scenes, but ultimately whether you get the job or not is, is beyond your control. So are you saying it's, Focus on what you can control. Focus on that rather than uh, trying to just make yourself feel good. Well, certainly, I would encourage people to be more outcome agnostic and focus less on uh, outcome. It's not entirely outside of your control how many uh, people uh, listen or watch your show. Um, that will be a function of the quality of, of it um, and your, your marketing, etc. And so that's information. If you see viewer numbers dropping a lot, it would be... You would be de deceiving yourself if you just ignored that because that's useful information for you. Yes, yeah. Again, this notion of um, focusing on what you can control is a bit of a paradox because actually we have far less control than we... Control is a bit more... is an illusion. We like to think we have control um, because it's very discomforting to think that we don't have uh, much control. But actually, it's very... I'm suggesting it's actually not to try to control how you feel or... Uh, your thoughts obviously your, you the example you you gave yes you want to focus on the process but in so in this situation or in this example the process is understanding what are my values in this situation whether that be people who are nervous talking speaking up in meetings I don't have the confidence to speak up in meetings I don't have confidence going out to to bat in a cricket match same thing that people think the solution to that is to increase their belief to minimize anxiety, to, to minimize self-doubt. You don't need to. You can still have self-doubt and speak up in a meeting because your decision to speak up in a meeting comes from values you hold. And a value there might be, it's important to me that I um, share my point of view. It's important that I challenge other people to facilitate group learning. And you can do that while still being petrified, while still thinking everyone's going to judge me. You don't have to remove those uh, thoughts or feelings. And that would be the process. Okay, no, that's helpful. And, and say in an interview context, um, you know, if you're feeling nervous and you're lacking confidence, uh, are you saying there that uh, you need to um, just share your thoughts or uh, try and get past the nervousness by saying, look, I, I want to get this job because I feel that um, you know, I, I would be able to, it would be a good job for my talents and skills is that a way of reframing it or in terms of how you would talk to yourself or how you would become confident or be confident in a situation like that obviously you're nervous you're you're worried because it means something to you to get that particular job but how do you get past that and you know what what um actions are you then focusing on in in that context for example so if it were a job interview yeah again it's a, the same the same approach. What are your values in that uh, job interview? What's important to you for how you will be in that um, job interview? And that isn't so much about reframing. You could reframe stuff. So if you're if you have very high levels uh, of anxiety because you're thinking, oh, I must get this job. Again, as I said earlier, that means you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself. That will be helpful to to a degree up until a, tr um, a turning point. It, if, if it's very important to you that you get a job, that will 
generate self-induced pressure, which will then help you prepare for the interview, um, do research on the company, uh, understand your uh, CV, understand your area. That's motivational. Once it goes past a tipping point, that's going to be unhelpful for you. So then, yes, having some form of perspective, look, actually, it's not going to be the, the end of the world if I don't get it there will be other opportunities, then that can be helpful. But confidence in the interview is much more driven by not even trying to eradicate eradicate nervousness or self-doubt, accepting that, but being clear on what a good what would be a good performance look like here in terms of what I'm doing. And that might be being curious. I'm going to demonstrate curiosity about th- this company and about the interviewee. Well, how would I know that I was being curious? Okay, I would be asking certain questions. I want to be a good listener in this interview. How would I know I'm listening well? And what action uh, equates to uh, good listening? And so being clear on what's important for how you want to be, translate that into particular behaviors and apply that uh, framework in in any context, but in that interview, that's what confidence is. Not feeling super calm and sky-high self-belief because self-doubt's healthy there's nothing wrong with self-doubt and if you're if you have a, a too high self-belief then you could come across as arrogant and um, that will be picked up by the people interviewing you and it's so any feeling is okay you don't need to change the feeling all that matters is what you do in the interview Paul, I, I just love that. And I just wish we had more time to explore this because I think it's just such a fascinating area. And I'm definitely thinking about it in a, a completely different way from the way I, I thought about it before. So th- thanks for sharing that with me and our listeners. Now, now sort of moving on to, say, decision making um, under pressure, obviously that, that, that's difficult. Um, any, any thoughts on that and, and about this whole idea of intuition and developing expertise? Uh, well, I mean, that, that's a huge error, you know, um, developing expertise and decision making and intuition. I mean, intuition is often a misunderstood construct. Intuition is, is really about pattern recognition and picking up cues in your environment. And there are um, obviously people do make decisions using intuition. Um, sometimes people make decisions analytically. And sometimes it's a mix of both. But uh, intuition is not some sort of uh, mystery, special uh, skill. Often people will explain a decision through intuition when actually something came to them. Something came into their consciousness after some subconscious intuitive process was going on. And they got some insight and it just popped into their consciousness. They don't have any, you can't look into an unconscious process because by definition, if you did, it would then be conscious. But intuition is pattern recognition and seeing certain cues. Now, there are certain contexts and and, uh, decision-making environments that are conducive to intuition and others aren't. So in the intuition literature, they call them kind and wicked um, environments. So a, a kind environment is where you will have repeatable patterns because you can only develop intuition if the similar patterns repeat and then you can start to pick them up. That's why um, you can develop intuition in, uh, in the medical profession. People looking at scans, uh, you know, expert radiographers will pick up things that novice radiographers will miss. There's research into neonatal nurses who could detect that babies were unwell before any diagnostic, medical diagnostic could sense it because they're noticing th- certain things in their environment which repeat and they've been doing it for a long period of time. They can't necessarily directly access this, 
but that's what's going on. If you're working in a, a, an environment which is characterized by randomness or huge complexity, then intuition is much uh, less valid or possibly even not possible. That would be what's called a, a wicked environment because you can't learn from it. If, you, if, if an environment just has randomness, then there's no repeatable pattern. You can't learn and you can't develop intuition because you can't pick up those cues. And so, so some different decision-making contexts allow for uh, intuition versus others. And, uh, and, you know, intuition tends to be a, a, quicker, a quicker type of um, decision-making. Obviously, you know, you're, I know you're familiar with the work of Kahneman. Um, so he has, and I think it's, very, it's important to always, you know, Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is like everybody who's interested in decision-making has read that book. It's a very celebrated book. But when you consume information, it's always important to, to think, like, what, am I, what am I not being told here? What are the what are the belief systems and assumptions that the author is making that aren't being articulated? So Kahneman is inherently skeptical about intuition. So he will look or in his research, he looks at for environments where intuition doesn't work. Another researcher, very well, uh, equally well known in decision making literature, is Gary Klein. But Gary Klein is a big fan of intuition, and he finds that intuition is very helpful. Well, it's not surprising because Gary Klein researches environments where intuition is valid. As I said, the, the, the medical profession, firefighting, whereas Kahneman looks in, in areas where intuition will make us um, fail. And it's because the environment lends itself to that. And I think that's a good example of you know, thinking critically about what we're consuming, what we're being told, and not deferring to an authority. Uh, about a particular uh, topic because they won't tell you there's what their assumptions are in the book because that won't sell the book but good stories sell the book so Paul is really trying to understand the environment you're in and thinking okay is are, are there these repeatable things going on uh, uh, if there are then potentially you can apply this intuition or recognize it, it, it's a, that pattern recognition thing but if there if you're in a situation where that's not the case. And obviously you have to understand that you can't apply these, um, you know, you can't pick up these patterns uh, and then just be aware of the situation you're in. Yeah, but, but it will still be useful information. If, you're, if you've got some, you know, intuition is experienced as a feeling. It's sort of felt somatically. There's a, there's a sense and that's still useful information. It doesn't necessarily mean it's useful information for making a decision, but it's useful information about yourself. And that's where, again, I go back to this uh, term reflexivity, because that's telling you something about uh, how you experience the world. But you want to be careful about how you attribute that feeling. If you're attributing that feeling to um, the decision-making environment, then you may your decision-making process may be flawed. And that's where understanding your environment and uh, yourself is really important uh, because there are some contexts where you don't want to be relying on intuition. I, I would not want to be relying on intuition if um, I had to perform an emergency medical procedure on somebody in the street. I had no medical training. Yeah. And just because something feels right, that's not going to make it the right thing to do. Whereas an emergency you know, paramedic, an air ambulance doctor, they will be operating on in intuition because that's rooted in many years of repeatable practice in a, a reliable, valid decision-making environment. And then they don't have to think about things. It just becomes part of their subconscious. Whereas if I were to try to do that, I, it would be a catastrophic uh, consequence. 
I mean, one thing I heard was that sometimes you know, people who have this great mastery in a particular field, they're, they're obviously seeing these patterns and they're just relying on past performance. But then the real skill is to say, if you have a fact pattern or a situation which is different, then the skill there is recognizing that and then applying a different set of thought principles to that. Um, I don't know if that's something that you've ever come across or... In, in what... Uh... In, in what domain have you? Uh, I, I, I was speaking. I was speaking to neuroscientists and just talking about like system one and system two, and just saying, look, is there any? What what should you sort of go down? And 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 he was almost saying, and this is more in a, like an investing decision making context. And he was saying, well, it's actually about trying to, you know, if you maybe see patterns, you um, you know, from and, and you can see that's happened in the past then you know, there's an element of intuition. But then if that's not the case and things are breaking down, because obviously model systems, you know, what's happening in the economy, it's not representative of what's happened in the past, then you have to you know, start going through a much more thoughtful analytical process um, to come up with, um, you know, like the, the financial crash or what's been going on you know, with Ukraine, Russia, macroeconomics things are breaking down in a way. So you can't just rely on past history to you know, predict the future or analyze. Um, it was more in that sort of context. Yeah. And um, of course, the past, again, is useful information. But, um, you know, I mean, at the very basic level, uh, you know, a capital asset pricing model in uh, stocks assumes that stocks follow a, a stochastic process, right? So, um Randomness is kind of embedded into the pricing of um, uh, financial uh, assets, but that doesn't mean that patterns don't repeat and the intuition is invalid. Um, I would, it's not the most valid of environments, financial markets for decision making for sure. Whereas uh, an area like, uh, well, you know, like chess, surgery, um, a sort of, you know, medical profession, there's more validity. But um, but nonetheless, the the experience of intuition again is information because it's telling you about as much as anything. It's telling you about your attitude to risk, what makes you uh, feel anxious or not anxious. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to reflect what's going on in the environment. It's but it's giving you information about yourself. So understanding yourself is all part of this process in in an environment where information is ambiguous and we're not sure how to make sense of information is that information coming from the market or is that information about me and that's a judgment and that that requires introspection to develop this reflexivity to understand okay what am i feeling now what what feelings do i shy away from what feelings do i avoid what's uncomfortable for me that's information but most people never attend to that so they have an, a, a lack of awareness of, of uh, you know, of these type of things. No, that that's so helpful, Paul, and th thanks so much for sharing with that with me uh, today. Now, obviously, I I, I realise that we're running uh, out, out of time. So, uh, you know, firstly, I'd like to just thank you so much for taking the time today to share your thoughts and insights with me and the, and the listeners just wish we had more time and just one final thing is there anybody you'd like to give a quick shout out to who's helped you in your career a quick thanks to to anybody who would i like to thank uh, well look i mean i'm inspired by many people and uh, you know within the coaching uh, community uh, I, I love the work of tatiana bashkarova she's a, a 
a professor of coaching who who writes a lot about uh, understanding the self um, issues around self-deception uh, that are interesting to me in my executive coaching work. Yeah, and and I, I guess my sort of LinkedIn community who are uh, you know great for sort of thinking partners and uh, and and challenging colleagues and coaching colleagues in improving the quality of our thinking. Brilliant. Well, Paul, thank, thank you so much for you know, taking the time to be with us today. And I'll make sure all your details about your website, uh, social media contacts are in the um, show notes. So uh, once again, Paul, thank you so much. Uh, have a great day uh, and enjoy uh, the rest of it and your call. Uh, take care. Thanks very much, Harsha. Thanks for your time. I've really, uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Cheers, Paul. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such an enjoyable interview. If you would like to listen to more episodes, then please consider subscribing to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers, and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.